Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Over the years and during your life, you might attest to the fact that you've had a difficult employer. The fact is that all of us at one point or another in our lifetimes have assessed uh, our employer as someone who could probably be more fair than he or she is. I certainly would fall into that category. Do right, patiently and respectfully enduring your employer's unreasonable treatment, and you will find favor with God. As best I can, that's my effort to communicate to you in a distilled way, in a condensed way, what Peter has for us in this text this morning. My hope would be that you would leave here with a passion for understanding how you are to think about your employer. Point number one, the response. The response to this command. How do you, how should you respond to the text of Scripture here? This term here, the very first word, servants. This term is derived from the term house. It's not doulos. Doulos is the basic term which means slave, which is oftentimes translated either as slave or as bond slave or bond servant. In many cases, uh, you have probably heard someone say that idea of being a doulos is that you are voluntarily under someone else's supervision or even captivity. This term has more to do with the idea of being in someone's house as a servant. As I said, it comes from the term house. Uh, In their day, in that day, this person might have rather been referred to as a domestic rather than simply a slave or even a servant. The term could be translated as house slave, household servant, domestic slave. And although it is often used synonymously with doulos, it's not the same word. It's not precisely the same term. In fact, interestingly, doulos is used innumerable times uh, seemingly throughout the scripture. This term is only used three times. So there is a difference between this term and the term doulos, the basic term for slave. The person who would have been referred to here, as I said, would have thought of himself or herself and really would have been in the context of being a, a more of a domestic servant. Probably not someone who was out in the fields doing the more difficult labor Uh, Maybe less abused if he's in an abusive context uh, because he's in the home, but in one sense maybe more abused because he's around the master all the time. He's not out there in the field away from the master. He's there in the home. Uh, Interestingly, this term could actually be used for family members. I don't think that's the context here. In fact, I think the context dictates that it is used nearly synonymously with the term doulos, with the term slave. But as you know, when a different term is used, there's a reason for that. I believe the reason here is uh, the fact that Peter wanted in the minds of the hearers and the minds of the readers to be thinking about the fact that you have a close proximity to your master, meaning your earthly master. For you and for me, your employer. There's a sense in which this context in the scripture is not much different from the employer-employee relationship. 
So the best application for you and for me today is to understand that the Lord would have you think about your employment relationship in a way that's dictated in this text. Isn't that great? Uh, One of the things about Peter, as you know, is he goes back and forth between this deep, rich, God-magnifying theology with then practical terms that tell you how to understand it, how to think about it, and what to do about it. So here he is saying, submit. So the response is, do it. (laughs) The response is, I'm going to do it. I'm going to submit to my earthly master. I'm going to subject myself, uh, as your ESV says, you're subjecting yourself to your master. Your NAS says submit to. It really means the same thing. The response is very, very simple. Now you say, what if I don't have a boss? I'm my own boss. I own my own business. Well, you do have a boss. Your clients are your boss. You say, but I'm the one that dictates the policies and the procedures of the company. That's fine. But if you have an agreement with someone to do work for that person, there's a sense in which that person has become your master for a time. He or she is paying you to do a job, and that job that you are to do shouldn't be dictated in your mind by 21st century Western culture so much as it should be dictated by 1st century biblical writing. What does the text of Scripture say? How should my heart be inclined toward God's honor in the workplace? Not how should my heart and my conduct be inclined to get more out of my employer as is seemingly, not only generally speaking, the commonality in Western culture, but specifically in the region of the country in which we live. I'm the boss. My boss isn't the boss. I'm the boss. That's kind of the way the roles have been reversed in our day. Interestingly, you say, but I don't have a job. I'm out of a job right now, then the best thing you could be doing right now is to work on developing the mindset of being submissive to your next boss. You say, but I'm working on my resume and I'm working on my communication skills. I'm working on my my interviewing skills, all those things. Good for you. Do those things. You should be doing those things. But the preeminent thought in your heart should be, I want to be the best, most productive, most submissive employee to my earthly master you'll see soon what the motivation for that is if you don't already know from our passage this morning. So point number one, the response. The response is to submit. It's to do exactly what Peter here is calling you to do as a servant, as an employee. He says, be submissive to your masters. Point number two, the receiver. The receiver of your submission. Who are you submitting to? Some would say, well, I submit to God. We talked about that last week, didn't we, when we looked at the command in the Scripture to submit to all human institutions, specifically the king and those sent by him to mete out justice in some cases, to provide punishment in other cases, to provide praise for those who adhere and obey the government. Um, The receiver of your submission here is not specifically the Lord. The receiver of your submission is the earthly master. Verse 18 goes on to say, with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And so you have every boss on the planet included there. Uh, From the person who is extremely good and gentle all the way to the other extreme of the person who's unjust or unreasonable and everything in between. 
That's the receiver. That's the recipient. That's point number two. Who is this submission given to? And I think oftentimes when a preacher talks to people in the church about employment-related issues, there is this temptation to think, well, you know, you don't really know what I go through. Uh, you know, you work for the church, and, and that's wonderful. You never have to deal with people who sin, <laughs> right? <laughs> you might be tempted to think that, but when you think it through, you know that's not the case at all. Let me just give you a little job history in my life. I think you might find it interesting. Just after college, I had seven jobs in seven weeks. Uh, I had moved to Houston, Texas to do a, an internship with a Christian theater, and I was told I needed to get a job while I was there for those months of internship. And so I started looking. And as I said, seven jobs in seven weeks before the Lord blessed me with a job in the copy room at an engineering firm that eventually led to a very good job in the computer division. That's the, that's the happy story. I started out, first job ever, was washing cars and cleaning up after auto mechanics. I worked as a busboy. I worked as a dishwasher. I mowed lawns. I was an ice plant worker. I worked at an ice plant uh, between my freshman and sophomore year in college. One time working at that ice plant, someone had wrapped the ice incorrectly on the pallet, and 2,400 pounds of ice came tumbling down on top of yours truly. That was my initiation into the ice industry. Quite fun, let me tell you. Another time while working there, I thought for sure I had stapled my finger to the glove that I was supposed to be wearing to keep my hands warm. I determined that I didn't want a career in the ice industry. I sold fire extinguishers from door to door at one point. I delivered newspapers. I was a pizza deliverer. I was a fireworks salesman. I worked as a convenience store clerk, a percussion instructor, a sound and lighting technician, I sold cologne on the streets of Houston, Texas. I'll bet you've never done that. Door to door. I was approaching a lady one time who was getting in her car to sell her some cologne. And another lady who I had tried to sell cologne to said, Lady, turn around. He's crazy. I turned around myself and didn't try to sell cologne to that lady. I sold tickets to the police ball over the phone. I was a lighting fixture call desk salesman. I was a house painter. I was a construction crew gopher. I was a vinyl siding applicator, a welding wire fabricator, a forklift operator, a land surveyor, radio and television tower climber. The tallest tower I ever climbed was 1,200 feet in the middle of the night to replace some, uh, some antennas that have to go up there to receive lightning bolts if they're in the area. I was <laughs> thanking the Lord it wasn't raining that night. I was a computer operator, a systems analyst. I loaded a truck and delivered packages for FedEx where I had seven different managers in 18 months. And most of you know what my sense of direction is like. I worked for FedEx delivering packages with the worst sense of direction on the planet. Um, I was a youth pastor and music minister. I was a substitute school teacher, even though I couldn't pronounce the word substitute. I was a substitute <laughs> school teacher. Uh, I was a school teacher. I was a school chaplain, football and basketball coach, school vice principal, and school principal. Each time I tell a workplace story around my wife's family 
dinner table, my mother-in-law says, Todd, what jobs haven't you done? The truth is there are many, many jobs I haven't done. I never worked for the circus. I, I was never a doctor, and I've never played professional golf. Uh, the list is, of course, much longer than that, as you can imagine. But in, in my work experience, much like you, I've been misled. I've been cheated. I've been lied to. I've been underpaid. I've been barely paid. I've been never paid. I've taken a pay cut. I've been poorly treated. I was once unjustly fired. I once had a boss swear at me repeatedly in front of several dozen other employees, ridiculing me for wearing a company hat that he had just provided me, telling me I was the stupidest person he had ever known. Believe it or not, I looked at him and said, you know what, I was just thinking the exact same thing. Talk about disarming a guy. But I've also been generously blessed with remarkably joyous working conditions, surprisingly helpful benefits. I've been well paid. I've been bonus paid. I've been back paid. And I've been overpaid. I've been unjustly hired. And in one case, I was justly fired. And believe it or not, that was a blessing that launched me into the next chapter of my life that was the Lord's timing. I've had jobs in the wind, the rain, and snow outdoors, and in the freezing cold indoors, in the heat and humidity, and in the dry heat outdoors, and in the blazing, frightening heat indoors. I've worked for some wonderfully good and gentle supervisors, and I've worked for some unreasonable people in various degrees in between. I'm not above any one of those jobs, and I'm not above any one of those employers for whom I worked. And if I had to do it over again, I would work for every one of those people again. And if during my time with them, as I look back, if I recall that I had been disrespectful to the Lord, if I had not submitted to any one of them, I would feel it my responsibility to go back to that person and explain that I dishonored Christ and that I did not handle myself well in that employment in every case, the basic responsibility in my job was to respect fully, to submit to my employer regardless of how he or she might have treated me because this is what finds favor with God. To respectfully submit to my employer is what finds favor with God. Reverent submission to one's employer brings the grace of God to the child of God. As I said, if I failed ever to do that, I would find it my responsibility to go back and communicate to any given employer that I had been disrespectful and that I needed to make that right before the Lord. Our text this morning is very, very clear. Servants, be submissive to your master's. Be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. <laughs> and, I, and I say, I suggest strongly that in our culture, it's a whole lot easier to find yourself thinking about the unreasonableness or the injustice of an employer and focus on that and spend all day thinking about it and spend all day long talking about it to other employees who feel the same way. It's wrong. It's wrong. And if you find yourself doing that, you need to decide right now, I'm stopping and I'm never going to ever do that again. I had great counsel. Kimberly and I received great counsel years ago, not related to this context, but with regard to an issue that was of great difficulty in our lives where we had been treated unjustly. And our friend said to us, stop talking about it. Just don't talk about it. Why would you talk about it? How is that helpful? 
I can't tell you how that changed our marriage, how it changed our view of ministry, how it changed our view of personal humility and effectiveness within the body and outside the body. Stop talking about it. You think your employee is unjust? You know the, you know the standard response to that. Thank the Lord that you have a job. Start there. But I think as you and I look at this text this morning, one of the practical responses that one ought to have is perhaps I'm the problem. If every employer I have ever had is unjust and unreasonable and unacceptable and the worst boss on the planet, I'm the common denominator. Maybe I need to consider my conduct a little more than I have. Maybe I need to consider my job performance a little more than I have. And you say, Todd, I don't know your circumstance. And I say, I read you that list so you know that I really do feel your pain. I really have been there with innumerable employers, some of whom were good and gentle and some who were unjust. So I'm not speaking to you simply from the text of Scripture, which in and of itself is what you need. It's what's helpful. But I do want you to know that I do have empathy for you. I do know what it's like to think that you're trapped in an employment situation and it's not good. The hope, though, would be that you would understand that the recipient of your submission is your employer. You must think of him or her as the receiver of your submission. This is why Peter so clearly says, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. Point number three. Point number three. The reason for your submission. The reason for your submission. You recall back in verse 17 that Peter tells us to fear God. He tells us to fear God. We'll unfold that a little bit more as, as we look at the coming verses here. But keep in mind that the reason for your submission is not a lot of things that you might have thought it was. Let me give you just a short list that I came up with in a matter of just a few minutes. You can add to this list. I'm sure you could easily do that. Here are some non-reasons. Here are some things that are not reasons for your submission. You ready? You don't need to write these down. Just listen. Because you have a great boss. You say, well, I mean, I would want to submit to a great boss. Right, that's not the reason, though. That's not the reason. The Bible never tells you submit to your boss because your boss is fantastic. Another reason is because you're, or a non-reason, is because your boss has a great boss. In other words, your boss is unreasonable, but you know that your boss's boss knows what's really going on, and one day things are going to get settled. That's not a good reason to hang in there and submit your boss. Another non-reason is that your boss is about to get fired. <laughs> Everybody knows it. Everybody's talking, just waiting for that day. The only person who doesn't know is your boss. Oh, we're so excited. Right? That is not a good reason to hang in there and keep submitting to your boss. Here's another non-reason. Here's one reason or something for which you should not be hanging on, a non-reason for your submission, is that you get paid really, really well. 
<laughs> you say, well, I don't have a problem with that. Many people are, yeah, that's not an issue. But maybe you do get paid really well, but you've got an unreasonable boss. That is not a reason to submit. I can keep submitting because my boss is unreasonable, but at least I get paid well. It's not a good reason. You're building your resume. That's also not a good reason to keep submitting to your boss. I can hang in there so that I've got, you know, this, this thing on my resume that says that I did this exact job for three years and it looks good to my next boss. This is another non-reason. Retirement is getting closer every day. I can hang in there because I've got 96 days until my last walk out that door. And I hand in my employee badge and all my woes. And I can fish every day, all day, or whatever you like to do. That's not a good reason to submit to your employer. Oh, here's another non-reason. The union has your back. All right? You know you've got defense. Somebody's going to come to your defense. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've been falsely accused of, it's okay. I'll submit to my boss because I know I've got the union in my back pocket or whoever else that would be willing to defend you. Here's another non-reason. You want a good reference in the future, right? My boss is unreasonable, but I know if I blow it here, if I really let my boss know what I think and how I feel, I won't get a reference for the next job, so I'll keep, you know, I'll keep submitting because I want a good reference. Those are not good reasons. Here's another non-reason. The hope that your boss will change. Maybe if I show him the light of Christ, maybe if I'm kind, maybe if I go above and beyond, eventually my boss will change and he'll become a good boss. There's good in him. I've seen it before once, six years ago. Uh, but maybe I will be the catalyst by which the Lord would change that person. You do want to be a a solid witness. You do want to be a humble expression of the person of Jesus Christ in the workplace. And yes, you do hope that your boss will come to know Christ. Of course you hope that. But that's not why you submit. Those are not reasons for submitting to your boss. And as I said, you could probably come up with uh, another myriad of reasons that are not reasons for submitting to your boss. The reason for submission to your employer is God's favor. God's favor. This is the promise of those who submit to their boss, that they will receive God's grace. Verse 19 says, For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, this is really in keeping, as you remember, with Peter's earlier words in this chapter. Back in verse 13, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So the idea that God's favor will come ultimately brings back, us back to the fact that this is about God. It's not about your better employment. It's not about you having a happier day at the workplace. It is about God. It really is about the Lord's 
sake. So you are to submit to every human institution. And you remember when we were in that text starting two weeks ago, I told you that there are three sections in 1 Peter where Peter unfolds what this looks like, the idea of submission. He gives us three practical venues, three real-life venues in which we are to submit. The first is with the government. The second is this morning in the workplace. And the next is in marriage. Well, again, the person who thinks, well, this has to ultimately be about me getting a better scenario, a better deal in the workplace, has missed the point. This is about God. It's for his sake. Verse 15, you remember, says, For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. It is that it is the will of God that you submit to the government. And in the same way, it is the will of God that you submit to your employer. Yes, you can hope for, one of the benefits certainly is that to some degree you will be involved in the silencing of the ignorance of foolish men, but that's not the motive. That's not the reason. The reason is God's grace. The reason is that God receives glory, that he is pleased you know, from verse 16, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of, of God. The freedom that you have, the freedom that you have been given by Christ's death, freedom from the penalty of sin, freedom from the condemnation of the law, freedom from the power of sin to operate, to function, to live your life in such a way that proves that freedom to others who look on. That freedom is not given to you as a covering for evil, but it is freedom to submit to those who are in authority. You have the freedom to submit to your employer, to your boss uh, within the workplace. And then you remember, as I told you earlier, verse 17 says, Fear God. That's from that passage that we memorized for this morning. Fear God. We're told here, if you recall, earlier in the passage, in verse 18, to submit to your masters with all respect. He's not saying submit to your masters and respect your masters. It is with all respect. Submit to your masters. Pull that little phrase out just for a moment. It's a parenthetical phrase. Peter says, servants, be submissive to your masters not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. But the idea of doing so with respect is not in regard to your employer. It's in regard to God. This term is phobios, from which we get our term phobia. Fear. Reverence. Awe. See, that, that changes, changes things. You could say that is a game changer in terms of my ability to submit to my employer. I'm submitting to my employer because God is the issue. God's glory is the issue. God grants me grace when I submit to my employer, and my respect is for him. You might well have an employer who's not respectable, that would not be unusual. But the call here in this text is not for you to respect your employer. It's for you to, to respect God. For you to fear 
God, just like he has said in verse 17. So back to verse 18, be submissive to your masters with all respect. The reason for your submission is the grace of God. Who receives the grace of God? Well, think of it. Those who don't fear God, they don't receive the grace of God. They're proud. Further into chapter 5 in Peter's letter, Peter says, as you know, God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Who is the proud person? It's the person who refuses to submit to his boss because he's not respectable. He doesn't deserve my submission. You don't understand how horrible and immoral and dishonest she is. Therefore, I refuse to submit to my boss. The call is not to submit to your boss out of a, some kind of motive that's either going to change or expose your boss. The motive behind calling you, commanding you to submit to your boss is that you fear God, that you will receive the grace of God out of your fear and your reverence for Him. A similar passage, as you might have guessed, Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, starts like this. Slaves, slaves, what is that a call to? to remember that you're not your own. You have been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us. So Paul says, slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men. In other words, not just doing what you do in an effort that your boss will see it. One translation says, not with eye service, not with that which can be seen, not just doing what you do so that you'll be seen doing it. But with what? As those who merely please men? Now, you don't want to be that. Not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart. The heart attitude is what this comes down to, really, in Paul's delivery here. Fearing the Lord. It really is about having a proper and right and humble fear of God. You know... Um, you know that the Bible tells you to pray without ceasing. I think the person who endeavors to do that is a person who fears God. You know, you might do an inventory of, of your day every so often. Maybe put it on your calendar. Uh, maybe your phone could alarm you, you know, once an hour or so throughout the day with the question, are you thinking about God? Are you fearing Him? Are you loving Him? Are you worshiping him? Are you loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you endeavoring to? That's really the issue. Are, are you exhibiting a heart attitude that says that I love God, I, I want God's perspective, I want to honor him? Or do you find yourself enamored with and imprisoned by, captivated by other things? And of course, all of us would say that there's a little of both, some of both. But the question is, are we increasing in our willingness to subject our thinking to the Lord? Are we willing to think about that which honors God? You see, that's a healthy, biblical, humble Christian fear of God. Thinking about the fact that there are consequences for sin. And there is reward for obedience. God gives grace to the humble. 
God gives grace. God grants favor to the person who submits to his boss, whether his boss is good and gentle or unreasonable and unjust. See, the mindset of the person who says, well, my circumstances is just, my circumstance is just bad. And I'm just hanging in there. I'm just doing what I can, counting the days, looking for another job, doing what I got to do. I'm not telling you that it's wrong to look for another job. I hope you understand that. If you desire to do that, then do it. But to hang in there thinking, this is the worst job I've ever had. I can't believe how horrible my circumstances are. I'm not one to argue with that. I don't know whether that's true or not. But the point is that the circumstances you find yourself in employment-wise right now are within God's sovereignty, the absolute best scenario for you today. Maybe not next week, but for now in this moment. Within God's sovereignty and his grace, your employment circumstances are exactly what God has for you that you would grow in your willingness to submit to your employer ultimately for God's glory that you would experience God's grace that you would have his favor and that he would have your heart the passage in Colossians 3 continues Paul says not only with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord whatever you do whatever you do do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. That is so helpful. So whatever you're having to do, whatever the details are, whatever the mundaneness and the difficulty and the, you know, the seeming <laughs> unnecessary element of it all. You know, it's just busy work. My boss makes me do this. Nobody ever looks at it. You know, I do this. Nobody cares. My boss takes credit for it when I do well. When I don't, he gets really angry with me. Whatever you're doing, you're not ultimately doing it for him. You're doing it heartily, wholeheartedly, fervently, in spirit. You're doing it for the Lord, not for men. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. You see, there's a close attachment to how you think of your employer with what you think about your salvation. That God has granted eternal life to those whom he loves ultimately means that they have the ability in the workplace to be happy, to be joyous, and to serve him. Why? Because of the inheritance that's coming. You work for the Lord. You work for the one who's given you eternal life. And friends, if at this point in a study like this, that doesn't excite you, then you're either having a bad day or a bad life. If you can't genuinely be invigorated and become vibrant in your thinking about what the Lord has blessed you with, removal from all sin separation from all pain, all suffering, all injustice, knowing that one day the Lord will, in fact, bless you with a state of glorification, and there will never, ever, ever be any pain or suffering or tears. And the response is to submit to your boss. That's the right response. Why? Because you're not serving him or her, ultimately. You're serving Christ. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. 
For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. In other, in other words, the Lord doesn't play favorites. There is no favoritism with the Lord. And I think oftentimes when a person slips out of this mindset, he thinks there is favoritism with the Lord, what does he start doing? He starts looking for the ability to cut corners because I'm a Christian, my boss is a Christian, you know, the owner, you know, he's out to lunch, but, you know, my boss and I, my supervisor and I, we get along really well, and because we're brothers in Christ, you know, he lets me shave some corners here and there. See, Paul is saying there are consequences for that, and the Lord doesn't play favorites. There are consequences for conduct that dishonors him. As I told you earlier, 1 Peter 5, verse 5 says, God's opposed to the proud. God is opposed to the proud. The person who stands rigidly, firmly in devotion to his own way of thinking about his employer. You wonder, friends, have you wondered why you're miserable? Ever? Have you ever found you're miserable? Maybe you don't know you're miserable. Maybe somebody needed to tell you. And then you start realizing, oh my word, you're right, I'm miserable. And you start thinking about, well, why would I be miserable? Could it be that you're a complainer? Could it be that you never really look at the blessing that the Lord has given you and the many, many, many things He's given you? Could it be that you're proud? Could that be? God gives grace to the humble. You want God's favor. You want God's grace. I'm not sensing God's favor. I'm not sensing God's grace. I'm not feeling it. Could it be that you're proud and the Lord's exposing that? Maybe even right now? I think it's a good question to ask. And there may be no better place than the employment venue for one to be forced into thinking that through. You remember from verse 12 of chapter 5 in Peter's letter that Peter says I've written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God stand firm in it don't stand firm in your pride stand firm in God's grace how does one stand firm in God's grace be humble be humble be thankful for whatever the circumstances are and as I said thinking of the fact that God in his sovereignty loves you such that whatever the circumstances are, specifically with regard to employment, those circumstances right now in this moment are exactly best for you to grow in grace, for you to grow in God's favor and to live a life that is most glorifying to Him. Think of it. If you had the best life, the best job, the best family, the best circumstances, the best car, everything you ever wanted and a little bit more, sprinkled with sugar, you know, How would anyone care whether or not you glorify God? They wouldn't. They're looking at the person who's suffering. They're looking at the person that's really going through it, especially in the workplace. People know who's being most concentratedly uh, focused on, the one who is suffering under the hands of an unjust employer. People know who the favorites are and who the least favorites are. And for those who in whose life you might have some input, they need to see you responding with humility. They need to see you responding with grace. And by the way, that's the motive. Not that they would see you, but that you would have God's grace. And as you extend God's grace, ultimately they will see that. 
In Romans 13, Paul uses similar terminology to what he's about to use here, continuing in verse 19 of our text. Peter goes on to say, If for the sake of conscience, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. I'm going to read you the passage from Romans 13. We're going to come back here and unfold this issue of conscience. In Romans 13, verse 3, I read this to you last week. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath. Stop there. Not only because of wrath. Paul's given us every reason to be thinking about God's wrath up to this point in Romans 13. So, not just for wrath, right? Because wrath is certainly God's response to sin. It's certainly God's response to a lack of repentance, This is uh, the age-old and uh, ultimately voracious truth that we find throughout the Scripture, that the sinner who dies in his sins experiences God's ultimate judgment, suffering eternally in ways incomprehensible. So, Paul unfolds that, but then he says, not only because of wrath, but for conscience sake. For conscience sake. It's between you and God. What's really going on in your mind? What's really going on in your mind? I've done a little bit of counseling in my life. And if there's one thing I'm hoping to see accomplished in a person's life, it's a clear conscience. It's the genuine ability to not just honestly be able to say, I have a clear conscience before the Lord, but for that to actually be true and to be affirmed by those around. But we can't see into each other's minds. We certainly can see body language. We certainly can see conduct. The Bible calls that countenance. In other words, how your face reveals what's in your heart. There's a substantial connectivity there, a relationship there. But ultimately, what's in you is between you and the Lord. That's why in 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul explains that the natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, but the spiritual man appraises all things. That's why there in that text, Paul uses the illustration. It's a truth, but he uses it as an illustration, the fact that your spirit knows everything about you. He's basically saying you know everything about you. Your conscience is the alarm system within you. Your conscience before God, your conscience unto God, as Paul has said it here in Romans 13, and that Peter is dealing with as well in verse 19 of our text. If for the sake of conscience toward God, the depths of what's really going on inside you, things that you can hide and maybe you have grown into great ability to hide from others, the mask that you wear does not hide your conscience 
from God. It is something for which to be deeply grateful because it is the alarm system that brings you back in those moments where you are near lost. If for the sake of conscience toward God, if for the sake of pure thinking before God, if for the sake of a right heart attitude before God, God's viewpoint, God's perspective, God's thoughts on what's actually going on in me, God's thoughts on my true condition, my true heart attitude, the true contents of my thinking, a clear conscience unto God. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. And that's what brings it out. It's suffering unjustly that brings about the ability to bear up underneath it for the sake of the cultivation of having a right conscience before the Lord. If you never had difficulty in your life, if you never had suffering, if you never had a bad boss, if you never had an unjust or unreasonable employer, it would be very difficult for those things to rise to the surface in the employment place. Praise God if you've got a wonderful boss. But if you don't, praise God equally that he has provided for you an opportunity for those things to be exposed. Why? That you'd have a clear conscience before him, not just for the sake of God's wrath. Not for that alone but that you, in fact, would be right before the Lord in the privacy of your own mind. Verse 20. This is so practical. Peter says, For what credit is there, right? What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? There's a sense in which he's saying, so what? You know, Paul's not unfeeling and unkind and non-empathetic, but he's saying, well, if you sinned and you're getting difficulty if you're getting a hassle from your boss well what credit is there for that you're getting what you deserved on a on an obvious basis hebrews 12 verse 9 says furthermore we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one We'll see the Lord. Maybe in your employment situation, you have dishonored the Lord. And that was exposed. And you're being disciplined for that. And there's a very direct relationship that you can obviously see. You're not asking, gee, I wonder why this is being brought on me. Well, you know why. But what about those times when you think you've been treated unjustly? Do you remind yourself of those times when you handled yourself poorly and you weren't caught, you weren't exposed. You say, well, I don't remember ever doing that. Well, that's wonderful. That could be true, and that's great if that's the case. But the fact is still, God disciplines those whom he loves, and he disciplines them for their sin, but also he provides unjust treatment so that the conscience will be made clear. And that is the reason. That is the reason 
for your submission to your employer, that your conscience would be clear before the Lord, that not only in your conduct, not only in your speech, God would be glorified with things in regard to external service, but in your heart, in your conscience, between you and the Lord. The Lord is honored, and he's, he's blessed. The remainder of verse 20 says, But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now see, you can rest there. You can say, that's what I want. That's what I want. I want God's favor. Man, I want to know that I've got a clear conscience. I'm doing my work heartily as unto the Lord. I'm not doing it for eye service. I'm not doing it to get a raise. I'm not doing it to have better benefits, have a better parking spot. I'm doing it because I fear God and I want to honor Him. I understand that the, the response is to submit. I understand that the the recipient is my employer, regardless of my employer's condition. And I understand that the reason is God's grace. I want to read to you the book of Philemon. Most of you know it's only one chapter. So it won't take long. Here's how it goes. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. So wonderful greeting, a wonderful blessing to Philemon saying to him, you know, we have this relationship in Christ. I want you to experience fuller blessing of that relationship. And he reminds him, he thanks the Lord for him. I pray for you. Uh, I hear of your love for the brethren and your service to the saints. All of this for Christ's sake. And then in verse 7 he says, For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Just kind of a final little statement there that points back to the fact that he has a deep love for him. He's refreshed by him. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's about to make a request based on love, not authority. And he says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. But you would do what you do based upon your personal desire. Verse 15, For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever no longer as a slave, 
but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is a special letter, as you know, written by a brother in Christ to a brother in Christ whose slave has gone AWOL. He has since come to know Christ. He has a relationship with Paul. Paul writes a letter back to the master saying, Receive him on my account, and whatever he owes you, I will repay to you. What's happened here? What's happened here? In his lack of willingness to submit to his master, now engaged in a relationship, obviously a discipleship relationship, comes to know the Lord, Paul shows that God has granted him favor. God has granted him grace. And through the vehicle of Paul, Paul writes a letter that the master would then receive him back. We don't know the end of the story, but we do know this. There's favor. There's favor in God's eyes that manifests itself through the church, through the body of Christ. You say, you know what? I don't really want to be a slave. I don't think that's me. I'm kind of my own person. You know, I'm kind of my own man, my own woman. Well, you have freedom. You remember that from verse 16. Peter says, act as free men. Do not let your freedom be used as a covering for evil, but as a bond slave of God. So you have freedom from one master and now slavery to another. Freedom from, from a task master, a hard driving master who, who would beat you relentlessly, who would cause you to suffer, who would be unkind to you, even hateful to you. And yet you have been given the privilege to serve the great master, the ultimate master who is one of grace. Paul says in Romans 6.22, But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. And the outcome? Eternal life. The outcome? Eternal life. Those to whom God grants eternal life, he makes slaves. He makes them servants. Servants who enjoy their slavery. This idea of being in the workplace where you're treated unjustly is a perfect opportunity for you to more deeply and practically understand the call upon your life to serve the one who loves you in the midst of an environment where one doesn't love you. In John 15, Jesus himself says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. 
No longer do I call you slaves. No longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing. He doesn't say you're no longer a slave. He just says, no longer do I call you slaves. No longer are you just ultimately a slave. You are also a friend. You have experienced reconciliation to God through Christ. You have friendship with God. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command to you, that you love one another. As I said, my hope this morning is that you and I would see the, the plain reality that you serve a greater master than the one you serve on a daily basis. You are to respect God, have reverence and fear for Him. The result then is that you have the privilege to respond with submission to your boss, regardless of his demeanor and his treatment of you, but also that you would think of him as that recipient of your submission, not just God, but that you would think of him or her as the recipient of your submission. But remembering that the reason is God's grace. Even as we just read from John 15, Jesus said, you did not choose me. I chose you. So how do we respond to that? Submit to your boss. Think of your boss as the one who is the receiver of your submission. At the same time, remember the reason behind all of that is God's favor, God's grace. Lord, thank you for your word. It's clear, simple. It take a lot of work to be confusing with regard to this passage. So we trust that in its simplicity, in its clarity, you have used it to move on our hearts to have deeper, more genuine, more sincere respect for you, reverence, fear for you, that the result would be that we, as we think of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, our King, our Master, also as our friend, greater love hath no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So Lord, help us to be, help us, each of us, each person in this room, to be an employee, whatever that looks like at the workplace, who responds well by submitting, realizing that his or her employer is the recipient of that submission, but to be motivated by your grace, that we would have your favor. We ask these things for Christ's glory. Amen.